We continue this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. I was just telling someone this morning that it's um, hard to go fast through the Sermon on the Mount. We probably better not um, err on the side of going slow. Um, and always to remember, these are, these are Jesus' words for us, to us as his disciples. Uh, I just want to remind you a little bit before we jump into the passage today, which will be Matthew 5, 13 through 16, um, just to remind you of the setting. Uh, remember right before this that Jesus in Matthew 4 had really started his, his ministry. Uh, he had started uh, the, his ministry, and the summary of that ministry was the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It was the same summary, uh, that, uh, a message that John the Baptist had. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near in the person of the king, Jesus, whom Matthew's proved to be that king, really, in his first four chapters, and he'll continue to unfold that in the rest of the book as well. But you also remember in the start of Jesus' ministry, he had started to gather these followers, these disciples, those who dropped everything. Literally, they dropped their vocations and their work to follow him and to become fishers of people. They have a mission they have a mission. Just as they have repented, that idea of turning allegiance from sin and self and entrusting, turning to God and entrusting oneself to God, entrusting oneself to Christ, entrusting oneself and having allegiance to the king, that they themselves are to be fishers of men. That's their mission. And really, we're going to connect with that a bit as we come to our passage this morning. And remember, we've, uh, the, this sermon uh, it has parts to it, and verses 1 through, really, verses 3 through 16 are the introduction to the sermon proper. Uh, we have a bookend from uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and then Matthew 7, 12, referring to the law and the prophets and this idea of righteousness. And we've been saying the whole sermon is really about kingdom righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus' disciples are to have and will have because they have connection with him. And since he's the one who's instituting the new covenant, he will give the spirit of the new covenant so that this obedience, this righteousness that's described in the sermon is possible. Is possible. And we now come to verses 13 through 16. And really, this, this matches well with what we've seen in the Beatitudes. We said the Beatitudes, Jesus is reprogramming the mind of his disciples to think about what does the flourishing life look like? What does the good life look like? And we've seen the attitudes, the character qualities, uh, the pursuit of righteousness, uh, even in the face of opposition and affliction, that is in the Beatitudes. But then it meshes perfectly well to then move to this last kind of section in the, uh, the introduction to talk about these metaphors of salt and light. And really what's going on there is if the Beatitudes are talking about character, then the salt and light metaphors that we encounter here are really coming back to their idea of mission, mission, and who, who they are and what they do, who they are and what they do. If the character quality is what's in focus in the Beatitudes, then a lot of what they do as disciples, remember that's the primary audience, Jesus' disciples, uh, what do they do in the world? And really to ask, um, ask the questions of us, who are we 
as disciples, and what is our mission? But that's not only the question we need to ask. We need to emphasize, and you'll see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just that Jesus is sitting in front of one disciple on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's instructing that one person. Uh, he's instructing the group of his disciples. He's instructing the community of his disciples. And we need to remember that because our culture values individualism highly, and it's not that the scriptures don't talk to the individual, they do, but we tend to lose our focus on the corporate responsibility that we have as disciples. We not only have responsibility as individuals, but we have responsibility as a corporate reality, as the gathering of Jesus' disciples. And that's very much in view in what we see in this passage today. You want to see the idea, not just the individual reality, although there are individual implications for what Jesus says, but there is a corporate emphasis. Or to put it this way, the yous that you see in this section are plural. They're plural. They're uh, y'alls. They're they're y'alls in the section today. And we need to feel the full force of that. And so as we enter this section of Matthew 5, 13 through 16, here's, here's Jesus' main idea and the main idea for us to take away this morning. Pursue distinctness and visibility in kingdom righteousness with your fellow disciples for God's honor among people. Pursue distinctness and visibility in kingdom righteousness with your fellow disciples for God's honor among people. That is the emphasis of these verses. And there's really two sections in this, this, this chunk this morning, uh, really following the two metaphors. There's, there's two uh, key metaphors using kind of the same basic structure of language. You are the salt of the earth, metaphor one, and then you are the light of the world, metaphor two. And really these metaphors are in parallel. They're going to talk about the same reality, though from different angles. So let's look at the first metaphor in verse 13, and here's here's really what Jesus is doing in this first metaphor. He's calling his disciples individually and collectively, don't lose your kingdom righteousness. Don't lose your distinct righteousness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's even what the Beatitudes have introduced to us, and he's saying, don't lose your distinct righteousness. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, first, he starts with this umbrella kind of statement. You, plural, you all, are the salt of the of the earth, the salt of the earth. What, is, what does that mean? Is he talking about you're salting the earth? You imagine a salt shaker and you're salting the earth. Is that the idea? Or is he talking about salt that comes from the earth? Those are kind of the two basic um, distinctions that we could take from this, but it means one or the other, which is it? And I think what he's emphasizing here is the idea that you encounter salt in the earth, right? When you think about uh, going out in the world, right, and there's these deposits of salt that you encounter in the world. Salt was very valuable in the ancient world. It was used for many, many, many different purposes. 
Of course, for taste, we think of that automatically, but in the ancient world, it was also used for preservation. They didn't have refrigerators, so you can't stick your chunk of meat in the refrigerator and have it last a long time, so they would use it for preservation. They would also use it for purification. They would also use it in sacrifices. They would use it in a number of different ways. And so the idea I think he's going to focus on is the idea that in the world at large, as you think about uh, you know, the things you encounter in the world, you encounter salt, the salt of the earth, the salt that belongs to the earth, the salt that belongs to the earth. And rather than focusing on one particular attribute, I think he's talking about the usefulness and distinction of salt generally. And you may say, well, wait a minute, the Bible said, uh, the, 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 even the translation I just read said, if salt has lost its taste, it seems to be emphasizing taste. Well, the word that Jesus used here is actually the word that normally means be made foolish or stupid. So literally, it would read something like, if salt has been made stupid. You're like, what? What does that mean? For salt to be made stupid. Well, I think what he's doing here is he's using uh, what we would call a double entendre. He's, he's making a sort of pun uh, and we could, we could, to try to render it with this idea of salt, uh, you could say the salt was made senseless, right? That would be another way of saying stupid or dumb, right? Uh, be made senseless or dull, uh, right? It's, it's losing its salty properties is the idea. It's using its salty properties as the idea. Salt's very valuable. You encounter it in the world, you, you, you find it, um, they would uh, find these, uh, what, the way that the, in Palestine you would get salt is you would find a deposit of salt or uh, maybe buy it in the marketplace. Maybe it had been brought from somewhere else, but you could go to some place near the Dead Sea. You could get, buy some salt there. You could buy some salt in the marketplace. But what would happen is unlike today's table salt, you have your table salt, it's never going to lose its saltiness. It's never going to lose its salt properties because what you have in front of you is pure sodium chloride. It's it's a molecule that'll never lose its characteristic. But in the ancient world, they didn't have the ability to just refine salt in that way or not so easily. So they would dig these, uh, you know, this the salt deposits out, but they would be corrupted with other impurities. And so what could happen, you have your salt on the, the shelf, so to speak, uh, but then what could happen is the, the sodium chloride part could go away. You could lose its salty properties because it's mixed with these other impurities, and depending on what quality of salt you bought. And so as soon as you find out, hey, uh, I'm, a, um, I'm a homeowner, I bought this salt, and well, it lost its, its, its salty properties... That's what he's talking about, whether they would use it for preservation, whether used for preservation or whether used for taste or whether used for something else, the salt of that day could lose its properties. It could become foolish. It could become senseless. It could become dull. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, we know this is where we got metaphorical language. So we got the metaphor, and then we got to think about what does it correspond to in reality? We got the metaphor, and what does it correspond to in reality? Well, we know that the disciples, the you all, uh, are the salt, right? They're, they're the, the thing, the, the quantity that you encounter in the earth that's distinct and useful, but then this idea of salt losing its taste or salt being made senseless or dull, uh, losing its salt properties, what would those properties be? 
in terms of what the metaphor is pointing to. Well, think about the context. What, what is he speaking to about his disciples? This whole sermon is about the righteousness that Jesus' disciples are to have. Even what he's already said in the Beatitudes, the kind of character uh, that goes against the world, right? If, if we think about the Beatitudes, things like the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek or the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those are qualities that are antithetical to the way the world thinks and works. It's distinct. It's different. You encounter it in the world when someone who is a true disciple has these this kingdom mindset, this kingdom righteousness, this kingdom character. But what's interesting, and it's it's significant that that the word that Jesus uses here for uh, the salt losing its, its properties is the word be made foolish because Jesus in his sermon a lot will draw this, this focus on the idea of being foolish or wise. Turn to the end of the sermon real quickly just to see this. Very end, very last part of the sermon, the conclusion when he's calling people. Jesus says in 724, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is this wisdom, foolishness idea that runs through the sermon. Jesus says, if you want to be wise and not foolish, you're going to live by these principles. It reinforces our idea with the salt metaphor and it being made dumb or senseless, that he's talking about the, the potential of a disciple, quote unquote, who claims to follow Jesus and yet doesn't have these righteous qualities or properties, or maybe seems to have some for a while, and yet they, they leach out. And what's the result? How shall its saltiness be restored? In other words, you got this impure salt, and the, the sodium chloride went away, right? You have no more salty properties. How do you restore it? Uh, you can't take some more salt and try to just dump it in. That's not what you're going to do. You're just going to buy new salt, right? Or, 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 or something of that nature, so you can't restore it, and what happens? It is no longer, the salt's no longer good for anything. It looks like salt, but it lost all its salt properties. It's no longer good for anything, except, and you kind of perk up your ears, right? You've got this kind of vision of, uh, or this image of someone in a home, a homeowner who's bought this salt, and they find out, eh, it's lost its, its salty properties. It's no longer good for anything, except, and you're like, oh, maybe it's still good for something to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's not just that it's useless. He's emphasizing it's utterly worthless and useless for anything. And we think about the metaphor and what's happening here. uh, That that language of being thrown out and trampled under people's feet, it sounds like the judgment language that's already been used by the John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist talked about bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I think he's talking about the same reality here. So who's the homeowner? 
in this analogy, it's the Father. It's the Father who, and the Son who bought the disciples, who called them to themselves to, to follow him. And yet, you can ha- there's a reality, and Jesus is alluding to this, that there can be a disciple, quote-unquote, like the crowds who maybe just came for the healings, the goodies, so to speak, and yet they weren't actually disciples. They were false disciples, false professors, they don't ha- and they, in the long run, do not have this righteous quality, this kingdom attitude, and so what happens? They are, they are thrown out in judgment and then trampled under people's feet. That's, that's the language of uh, being despised, right? You don't, you don't even think about uh, when you're walking on a trail. Uh, Ashley and I went hiking yesterday, and we're walking on these trails. You don't even think about what's under your feet, right? You just despise it. It's just totally, totally utterly worthless. What is Jesus doing here? It's a warning. It's a warning. Don't lose your distinct righteousness. It's a warning that true disciples will heed, but that false disciples, false professors come to you. And you can think about, and you're like, how does that look? Well, think about our, let's just think about the church in America for a little while. Remember, this isn't just an individual reality, although it has individual implications, but it's a corporate reality. If you were to look back a hundred years ago and the denominations and groups of people that were proclaiming a true gospel, they would be way greater than what we have today. But today, there are many denominations that used to be faithful, used to be faithful in proclaiming the word, and yet they have abandoned the truth. They're no longer walking according to kingdom righteousness. And they are under, as such, they've sort of their saltiness has leached out. And not only will they face God's judgment for that, but more so the watching world despises them, don't they? They still bear the name of Christian, of Christ follower, of disciple, and yet, and yet the world laughs at them because you, you claim to follow Christ, but you're not actually following him. You're, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. So not only is there judgment from God, but there is even a despising of the world. And so what is Jesus emphasizing? Don't lose your distinct righteousness. Pursue these things, because otherwise you will be worthless under God's judgment and scorned by the world. And we think of that not just as, you can't, it's not like you just talk about salt and like you're talking about an individual grain, right? You're talking about a group of salt, but it has individual implications, it has individual implications. Sin, sin and lack of righteousness has individual and corporate ramifications for God's reputation. It has individual and corporate ramifications for God's reputation. So we have to ask ourselves, Individually and collectively, where is your walk compromised or where could it be? Where is your walk compromised or where could it be? Where, where as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to encounter things and you're going to say, ooh, that hurts. Uh, because it's exposing. It's exposing. Uh, if you, uh, if you uh, it's, it's the Spirit exposing, that's, that's a problem area. And if it's untended, it could 
compromise your whole walk, but not just yours. The idea, you know, we have this idea as individuals, well, it's just my sin, or it's just my lack of righteousness. It's not going to hurt anyone. But the reality is, is we know this to be true. We can look at people's lives and see it, that sin in the individual spreads to the corporate. It damages God's reputation, not only on the individual level, but on the corporate level. Your sin is not just your individual responsibility or problem. It affects everyone. It affects everyone. It affects the whole lump of salt and its, and its ability as, as us as disciples to minister in the world. And so this is why, as a church, we are committed to appropriately calling one another out on our sin. If you see sin in my life, you'd better call me out on it, because otherwise there's huge potential for, uh, to, for, to dishonor God. Likewise, if I see sin in your life, I'm going to call you out on it. Why? Because it, it, it's not your reputation that's at stake. It's not my reputation that's at stake. It's God's reputation that's at stake. It's Christ's reputation that's at stake. This is why we practice church discipline. We do, will and do practice church discipline. Why? Because it's not about being comfortable. It's not about it being easy. It's about Christ's reputation. It's about the Father's reputation. It's about our reputation as a church and our ability to function on mission, to be distinct and useful in the world that people encounter. We want people encountering the members of Faith Bible Church and, and seeing that kingdom righteousness permeate their life just in how they conduct their affairs in everyday life. And when you want to say, that's different, that's unique. But conversely, if that isn't there, then there looks a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple, looks nothing different than the world, and we become useless. We become useless. So this point in the first metaphor that Jesus is talking about, don't lose your distinct righteousness. Otherwise, we're useless as a church and as individuals in our mission. Remember the mission that Jesus has given the disciples to be fishers of men in the world. But secondly, we get the majority of verses in this section on the second metaphor, the second metaphor, the light metaphor. And the first one has a negative ending to it, really. It ends on a downer. It really does, right? Don't lose your distinct righteousness. But the second one, the second section emphasizes this, do have visible righteousness for God's honor. It's the corresponding, the complementary idea to the first metaphor. We're really speaking about the same reality. It's we're just emphasizing different things. Do have visible righteousness for God's honor. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. That's the umbrella metaphor that we're dealing with in this second section. So we switched, we changed, but there is a parallelism between these two. Salt and light correspond to one another. Earth and world correspond to one another. Just like you're in the world and you encounter salt, which is distinct and useful, Light you encounter in the world. You, you, you're in the world. It's part of the world. It permeates the world, but you encounter it, and it's distinctly useful in the world. It's visible by definition. So we've got this light that you're encountering in the world. And again, this is the disciples, plural, collectively. Uh, they, we're not talking about a single ray of light. We're talking about collectively the light of the disciples in the world. 
And then what Jesus does is he, he, he has this umbrella metaphor of light in the world, and then he has two sub-metaphors to emphasize his point. He goes right to this, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now you're like, well, why did he just jump from light to a, just a city being built on a hill? Well, given the context of light, because he go, jumps right back to light in the next, uh, the next phrase, I think he's talking about a city at night. Have you ever been driving along on the freeway, right, at night? You're coming in at night, and actually from quite a ways away, you can, if it's, a, it's, a, it's the right conditions, you can see the glow of the city miles before you get there. But even here, he's talking about you're seeing on the city all these, these individual houses with all their individual lights lighted, but together, collectively, they have this light function. If you were a traveler, it'd be, it would draw you to that city set on a hill at night. And he's saying that's like the disciples. You individually are lights, but then collectively, the collective force of all of that put together, it cannot be hidden. Hidden would be correspond to being, losing your saltiness, right? The, the idea is that you, you can't, you, you have the city at night, it's all lighted up, there's no way that it's going to be hidden. And he continues, he moves then to a second sub-metaphor, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So now he kind of like zoomed into one of the houses, and he's like, well, even think about a house, you've got one of these little oil lamps, you would put oil in this lamp, and then it would have a wick, and you would maybe have one of these lamps for uh, houses that for normal people would have one room. So you've got one room in a house, and you, it gets dark at night, you need some light, and so you light this lamp. You don't do that, you don't light a lamp to just immediately put it under uh, a basket. Uh, this is this is, something, this is like a measure for grain. It's like two gallons or so. So it's a pretty big thing, and you would put it over this lamp. You wouldn't light something and immediately put uh, a, a bushel over it. It doesn't make any sense. It ha- needs to have an effect. It needs to have visibleness. It gives light to all in the house. It gives light to all in the house. What's it correspond to? Well, here we get in verse 16 an actual explanation uh, more explicitly of what Jesus is talking about. In the same way, in other words, just in the same way that you've got a city set on a hill or a light in a house making everything visible, you don't hide those things, they're very visible, they're very distinct. In the same sort of way, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. Now, they are light. That's what he said. You are light, right? You're the light of the world, individually, collectively. Let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. And now we get an explanation of what this light, what what makes them bright, what makes them uh, distinct and visible in the world. He's saying they're good works. They're good works, which corresponds to what we've already said, that what the Sermon on the Mount is talking about, this is what kingdom righteousness, kingdom action, not just kingdom action, kingdom words, kingdom attitude, kingdom character, this is what it looks like. And so this light metaphor, how, how does your light individually and collectively get shined? It's in living according to this sermon in accordance with this kingdom righteousness so that those good works 
are visible in the world. They're distinct. It goes back even up to what we talked about in the Beatitudes. The last four, what we talked about last week. Remember how the disciples are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, their righteous actions, their mercy, their being pure in heart, their peacemakers in the world, that's what's visible. So you're seeing light. The world is seeing light. But what is that? They're seeing that kingdom righteousness, those good works. So he's really kind of giving a synonym for what that light looks like. So he really hasn't given us the ultimate purpose yet, but he does. He does in the next phrase. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before people so they may see your good works, but the ultimate goal here is this. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, who, to give glory, what does that mean? It means to give honor, give praise, ascribe worth. And here it's talking about the disciple's father, right? That, and this is interesting. I think this is the first time that for the disciples, uh, God, God the Father, is called their father. But that's what happens when you repent, remember Jesus' message is the backdrop of this, repent, turn allegiance from sin and self to God, entrust yourself to Christ, come under his rule and under his allegiance only to him, then God becomes your father. But notice who's giving glory here. It's not the disciples. You notice that? It's not the disciples giving glory. It's the people who see their good works and they give glory, they give honor to the disciple's father who is in heaven. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, let's ask the question, is it possible for the natural person to give glory to God? In other words, does the natural person give honor to God and praise God and exalt God as king? And of course, the answer is no, absolutely not. The scriptures declare that man, apart from God's intervention and God's grace, is an enemy of God. They don't give God glory and honor. They don't ascribe worth to God. They do the exact opposite. They try to take glory and honor for themselves. So if the disciples are shining their good lights or their, their good works uh, as their light in a, in a dark world, a world in exile, and a world in exile because of sin. We've seen that a bunch in Matthew. And then we get this turn for the purpose of these people in the world giving honor, giving glory to the Father, to the disciples' Father who is in heaven. What that means is these folks have been changed. These folks have been changed. And that's why the light shines. We can even see this in terms of Jesus himself. If you remember back in chapter 4, the beginning of his ministry, Isaiah was quoted. And what did it say? The people who walked in darkness, the darkness of exile, have seen a great light. Right? Jesus is that light. And what did Jesus do? Not only did he proclaim the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, but what did he do next? He also did good. He also did good. He had the kingdom message, but then he also healed those who were sick. He gave a foretaste of that kingdom. He did good. He was that light. And then what did he do? He gathered disciples around him 
And as those who repent and entrust themselves to Christ, they themselves become lights derivatively. That's what we're seeing in Matthew. And they do the same thing. They have the kingdom message on their lips, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. You never get rid of the message, but they also are doing good. Or to put it this way, living the kingdom righteousness that Jesus is calling for, yes, for some, there will be persecution, right? That's what he just talked about last week, uh, verses 10 through 12 uh, in Matthew 5, that those who practice his righteousness, there'll be those in the world who see that and they'll hate it and they'll persecute people for it. Or by God's grace, there will be some who see that distinction, that difference, that that otherworldliness of Jesus' disciples, and they will be attracted to it. And they will be attracted to it. This is how evangelism, if we were to put it in these terms, works. You not only say the truth, which is necessary. You can't, you can't just have actions and say, well, that person must be nice, and let me ask you about that. That's not usually how it works. You do good things. People, they might kind of wonder about it, but you don't usually get asked about it. But if you have the message of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, which is the summary of our message, just as it was for Jesus, and you back that up with kingdom righteousness, that's a powerful combination. That's a powerful combination. And that's what the Father and the Son use through the disciples. That's what the Spirit uses through disciples to draw people to to see there's a distinction here. There's difference. Why is that? And then you, you, you bring the message. So it's both and, right? You, you speak the message of the kingdom, you back that up with good works. You do good works, and you back that up with the message of the kingdom. And the aim for the disciples, the aim for us as we do that is God's glory, God's honor. That is why we live That is our ultimate motivation as Christians. Christ has saved us. The Father has saved us. And we love him and we delight in him. And we know that our ultimate treasure is going to be enjoying him for all eternity. And we want to honor our Father. We want to bring him renown and praise. And this is why we live up to his name in the sense of this kingdom righteousness that Jesus is speaking about in the gospel. We want other people to honor our Father just as we, by God's grace, honor Him. How does this look in life? Again, it's individual and corporate. You shine your light, you are salt in in the spheres of life where God has sovereignly put you. He has put you in a place in life where I will never be able to be, but He's put you there He has put you there, and if you're acting in accord with this righteousness, not necessarily, I mean, uh, you're doing it in the sense not not just to be intentional with other people. You could do it in an intentional way that I'm doing intentional good to, to attract attention, ultimately for God's glory, not your own. Uh, but it could just be matter of course, right? This should be the matter of course uh, for disciples to live in this sort of way. And if you're just living daily life and you're going to be different because of who you are as a disciple of Christ because 
of that kingdom righteousness. So whether you're being intentional about it, I'm going to do good to people, and then I'm going to back that up with words, or whether it's just matter of course, walking through life as a disciple, you're going to look different, and then that's going to foster opportunities to speak the kingdom message and to proclaim the source. The source of these good things is not me, because we're all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. The source of these things is ultimately the Father himself through Christ, through the Spirit that he's caused to dwell in me. Remember, that's the only way that anyone does anything in the Sermon on the Mount is through the Spirit. That's how that works. As an individual, that's how that works. And then it works corporately as well. Together, as a church, we walk according to kingdom righteousness. Remember what Jesus says in John, by this all people will know that you are my disciples as you have love for one another. But it's not only that, it's also things like gathering on Sunday morning. If you think about it, uh, and especially maybe in Hood River, this is very odd because Sunday morning is another good time to go windsurfing. It's another good time to go on a hike. It's another good time to uh, do whatever, go on a bike ride. But when we gather together, what we are saying, the gathering, the local gathering of believers, that is us being salt corporately. That is us being light. Gathering and coming to church doesn't feel that significant, but it is because it is putting on display that our highest, our highest priority is God and to hear from God through his word, to sing praises to our God, the one who has rescued us to gather with brothers and sisters and together to manifest the local manifestation of God's presence on earth in the temple, the local church. That's part of us being distinct and visible corporately. So where can you as an individual, do good to those around you? Where, how is your character before other people's, just as a matter of course, but where can you also do good to those around you? Back that good action up with words about Christ's kingdom and repentance. And then here's the question, not only for individuals, but corporately, where can we as a church corporately do good? Some of the things are a matter of course, gathering, although it's significant, but we can also do good corporately together shining good works before others, so that not just to do something good, but also to point people to the Father. So we've seen Jesus' call in verse 13, the warning, don't lose your distinct righteousness, because otherwise you're useless. In verses 14 through 16, do have visible righteousness for God's honor. And you got to keep that metaphor. Those meta- remember, we're just in the introduction in the Sermon on the Mount. So you need to keep that metaphor as you see command after command that Jesus is giving. And remember, part of following these is being salt and light. So another question you could ask is this. Are you ready for the Sermon on the Mount to expose where you need to pursue righteousness to be an effective fisher of men, to be effective salt, to be visible light in the world? We want to be distinct and visible as individuals, but also as a church. We don't want to blend in. We want to have the distinct character of kingdom citizens. We want to avoid error and sin as individuals and as a church for the sake of God's name. 
We want to do good as individuals and as a church for God's glory. And I remind you once again, how is this possible? This is not possible except for the fact that we come to Christ and as the new covenant mediator, he gives us the Holy Spirit. We are brought into union with Christ. We are, we are made one with him, and he gives us his spirit to cause us to walk in these ways and to obey. We're going to fall short, but when we fall short, we come back, we repent, we trust Christ, and we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us to grow and to walk in these ways for God's honor to be salt and light. Pursue distinctness and visibility in kingdom righteousness with your fellow disciples for God's honor among people. Let's pray for, to that end. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all honor. Father, you are worthy of all honor, and we want to live that way as individuals and as a church. So Lord, help us to do that. We know we cannot do so apart from your grace. We know we are weak, and we know that we fall short in these ways so much. And Lord, we thank you that we can come back to you, Lord Jesus, confessing our sin, knowing that you paid for it at the cross, knowing that we stand, we have a righteous standing before the Father through you and you alone. But we thank you, you've also given us your spirit so that we can grow practically in these things and display a kingdom righteousness to, to a world the world around us. Help us to do that increasingly. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live that way and that people would see it, that we would be distinct and visible, and that as, as individuals and as a church, that we might be able to proclaim the kingdom message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And we pray as you have saved us, as, as you've had mercy on us, that you would have mercy on others. And it's all for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.